Hello and welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman. My name is Michael Bradley, I am your host, and I want to thank you for joining me on this, the inaugural episode of the show. The mission of this podcast is to take a closer look at the beginnings of one of the world's most famous superheroes, Superman, starting with his earliest stories in the 1930s, both in comics and other media. Before we get started, I thought I would give just a, a brief bit of background and detail on the thought process behind the show. This podcast started out with a, a much different focus and actually started with an email I sent last summer to my buddy Ryan complaining about, as I do on occasion, certain aspects of modern comics. In reply, Ryan took a comment that I made and kicked back a suggestion that we start a podcast where we could basically talk about the things we love. I think, and I'm, I'm sure Ryan does too, that comic fans can be, and I hate to use the word negative, but we can focus too much on the negative the negative parts of the industry or the the stories and we we forget to we forget why we got into reading comics in the first place or why we like superheroes or whatever the the genre is that we we like to follow so when that idea as things tend to do from time to time fell through and and Ryan wasn't able to do the podcast i started kicking around other ideas Superman is without a doubt my number one character, and if I was going to put together a podcast, I wanted it to be at least somewhat related to the Superman universe. There are already several great Superman-related podcasts out there that cover various aspects and time periods of the character. I, I didn't really want to duplicate or tread over any of their efforts, so after thinking about different subjects to focus on, I finally hit on the idea of taking a look at Superman from the beginning and exploring the development of the character, not just in comics, but also in radio, newspaper serials, and eventually on film. There's quite a bit of information online about Superman, but the information about his Golden Age exploits seems rather scarce, especially where the non-comics stories are concerned. Most information that is to be found about the radio and newspaper serials is primarily just episode lists or dates and basic background. A lot of the staples of the Superman mythology first appeared in these non-comics interpretations, and while that bit of trivia may be common knowledge amongst fans, what gets lost a lot of times is, at least what I think gets lost a lot of times, is how that fits historically with the comics and how the comics fit with it and how it all goes together. So I thought it would be interesting to take a look at everything, all of Superman's various incarnations, comics, newspaper, radio, cartoons, serials, starting from the beginning and take a look at how things unfolded. The Superman of the 1930s and 1940s, while similar in some ways to the one we see today, is really quite different as well. So I'm looking forward to exploring through these early years and kind of tracking the development of the character. Now I would be remiss if I didn't point out that while one appeal of focusing on the golden age of Superman was that it was unexplored territory, at least in podcasting terms, it came to light as I was preparing the show that another podcaster had also been working on a show that likewise explored the golden age of Superman, which can only be uh, explained as great minds thinking alike. I talked with him on email, and we ultimately decided to both go ahead with our shows because, hey, it's a big internet, and there's plenty of room for different takes on the same material. As of this recording, the first episode of that show hasn't been released yet, and um, as far as I know, it hasn't even been uh, widely announced which is why I'm being rather vague, but given the track record of his other efforts, I'm sure it's going to be a great show, and I, I look forward to checking it out myself, and I will, I'm going to be sure and let you guys know when that show goes live so that you can listen to it as well. So this episode, we will be taking a look at Action Comics number one, which was the debut of Superman, and unquestionably one of the most important comics of the last century. 
Action Comics was the fourth title published by Detective Comics, Inc., which would later become National Comics, National Periodical Publications, and eventually DC Comics as it is known today. Sources I've found give two different dates for the release of the debut issue of the magazine. Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics at DCindexes.com gives May 3rd, 1938 as an approximate on-sale date, while documentation from the Siegel lawsuit against Warner Brothers, published on March 26, 2008, gives the on-sale date as April 18th, 1938. I don't know which, if either, is correct. As far as the legal proceedings go, April 18th is the official on-sale date. But my gut tells me May 3rd is probably closer to the actual date it went on sale, and I base that on my rough knowledge of how distribution worked back then and how it's changed over the years. But also, I heard an early 1940s interview with Jerry Siegel where he made a brief mention to Superman first appearing in May 1938. Either way, the debut issue of the magazine was released with a cover date of June 1938. The cover price was 10 cents, and that is a price the, the comic would have all the way until 1961. While Superman was has rightly been called an overnight success, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster's road to getting that first story published took years of hard work and, and a lot of rejection. I'm not going to delve into a lot of that at the moment because I'd rather just jump right into the first story. I might discuss the creation of Superman a bit more in a future episode, but until that time, if you are interested in the prehistory of Superman, there are many great resources, both in print and online, that discuss it to varying degrees, and you can check those out. The cover art to Action Comics number one was by Joe Schuster and features Superman hoisting a green car, which looks like a mid 1930s Studebaker, over his head and smashing it into a rock while three men flee in terror. This is a very iconic cover that artists have paid homage to dozens of times, both on Superman comics and non-Superman comics, as well as outside of the comics, such as in Superman Returns and Smallville. According to Sheldon Mayer, the image was chosen because, quote, Harry Donenfeld felt that nobody would believe it. I, I think it can be difficult for modern fans to grasp just how striking such an image was, back in 1938, when detectives and non-superhuman protagonists dominated the pulp genre. A character displaying such a feat of strength was just largely unheard of, but even beyond that, this is just a very dynamic cover. The, the bright yellow and red background, the green car, and Superman's blue and red costume make it a very colorful and eye-catching cover, and it's definitely one of the most iconic comic book covers of all time. At the top, we see the now-famous Art Deco-styled Action Comics logo, which was most likely designed by legendary DC logo designer Ira Schnapp. Beyond the logo, the date, price, and number, there is no other text on the cover. No indication of the character's name or whether he's a hero or a menace. Just a powerful image of a man performing a fantastic feat of strength to the terror of onlookers in order to whet the appetites of potential readers. One interesting thing about the cover is Superman's costume, which is a bit different than the costume he sports inside the book. Now, we'll see quite a few minor costume tweaks and slight variations in these early issues. Several are based on colorist errors, artist error, or simply the evolving style of the costume. Here, though, both on the cover and inside, we see the same basic Superman costume that fans are familiar with today, with the blue bodysuit, red trunks, and red cape. However, there are some differences. Perhaps the most noticeable difference is Superman's shield. The artwork on the cover of the issue is believed to date from a few years prior to the interior artwork, which is evident by the fact that the shield is an early version only seen in one other place, and that's a promotional, a piece of promotional artwork that was done by Joe Schuster and used when the, the two were trying to sell the feature to syndicates. 
The cover shield is a solid yellow with a simple small red S in the center. The shape of the shield is scalloped at the top and the sides are a bit rounded though still coming to the point to a point at the bottom. To give a better visual, the shield is something of a cross between a policeman's badge and the shield that would later be carried by Jack Kirby's The Guardian, if you are familiar with that character. Inside the issue, Superman's shield is an inverted yellow triangle with a thick yellow outline and a black outlined yellow S formed inside the shape of the triangle. With just one exception that I'll talk about in a bit, there is no red in Superman's shield in this first story. Two other costume differences between the cover art and the interior art could possibly just be chalked up to different colorists. I wasn't able to find any definitive information about who colored the cover or interior artwork. However, one name that kept popping up in my research was that of Ed Eisenberg, who was assistant production manager for the company at the time and eventually became production manager. Who actually colored the cover art and interior art, whether it was Eisenberg or Saul Harrison or someone else entirely, will likely never be known for sure since that information has likely been long lost to history. However, the coloring differences remain. First up is Superman's belt, which on the cover is red just like his trunks, while inside it is the now traditional yellow belt. More noticeable is Superman's boots, which on the cover are both red and blue. The red comes just above the top of his ankle, which at first glance may appear to be the end of the boot, but a close look at the artwork reveals that the boots go much higher with boots, excuse me, with blue straps lacing up his shins. This blue is the same blue as his costume, so it can be difficult to see. Inside the book, the boots are the same style with the straps lacing up the shins, but are colored completely in blue. Another thing that modern fans may note is that both on the cover and inside, Superman lacks any version of the S-Shield on his cape. The cape shield won't appear for a little over a year from this issue, and will go through its own series of changes, but I can talk more about that when those issues come around. One final thing that I'll note about Superman's appearance is the spit curl. It's difficult to tell if Schuster intended to draw a spit curl or not, some panels, both here and future issues, his hair looks slicked back, similar to how George Reeves or Dean Cain wore theirs when portraying Superman, but in other panels, it does look like more of a spit curl style. As later artists come along, especially as we get into the early 40s, the spit curl does become more pronounced, but here it's kind of questionable from panel to panel. Speaking of artists, Credits in DC Comics were not common practice in the Golden Age. In fact, the first Superman story to feature credits wasn't published until 1970. Golden Age Superman stories typically bore the signature of Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, even though they might have actually been done by different people. We know the earliest stories were done by Siegel and Shuster, and, and in fact, Siegel wrote all of the Superman stories until mid-1943. However, on the artistic side, when the newspaper serial came about and workload increased with the eventual edition of Superman and World's Finest Comics, Joe Schuster began farming out inking and detail work to other artists, eventually employing an entire shop of artists to help him put together the issues. I'm, I'm trying not to get too far ahead here so I can discuss these creators more when we get to those issues, but suffice it to say, when we get into the 1940s, things start getting a little muddier as far as the credits go when these artists start doing entire issues by themselves. I'll use as many resources as I can and do my best to give accurate credits for stories, but in some cases it's simply not known or the person credited is just a best guess by those well-versed in comic art. I consider myself a, a pretty big Superman fan, but I will confess that I am by no means an expert. If any of you listeners have corrections or information in addition to what I talk about on the show, you are encouraged to write in. I will be giving my contact information at the end of the show, and feel free to, to send me an email and I can read that on future episodes. I, I really hope to make this a, 
an interactive show where folks can write in and we can all explore through this together. Like I said, I'm by no means an expert, and I'm sure there are folks out there listening to this that have insights that I didn't even catch. So feel free to write in. Like I said, the, the contact information will be at the end of the show. So getting back to Action Comics number one, the story we see in this issue actually gained life a couple years prior to 1938. As I said, Superman's road to publication was a long and winding one, which I may cover more extensively in a future episode. But to cut to the quick, when the concept we know as Superman today was born in 1934, Siegel and Schuster put together several weeks' worth of sample newspaper strips featuring the character to attempt to sell to a syndicate. Superman as a daily newspaper strip and not as a comic book, which really wasn't even an industry at the time, is what the boys had envisioned from the beginning. Finally, in 1938, the strip landed in the hands of Vin Sullivan at Detective Comics, Inc. Sullivan wanted to use it for a new magazine he was putting together, Action Comics. In January 1938, Sullivan contacted Siegel and Schuster and told them that he wanted to use the feature, but that the strips would have to be redone as 13 comic book pages. So Sullivan sent the strips back to Cleveland and Joe Schuster cut them apart, trimming scenes, cutting panels, redrawing panels, and reassembled them into the proper format. The pages were then sent back to New York and the rest, as they say, is history. So, as I said, the story here was written by Jerry Siegel and illustrated by Joe Schuster, or as the story is signed, Jerome Siegel and Joe Schuster, while Vin Sullivan is historically credited as editor. Most Superman stories prior to 1942 weren't titled at the time. With the advent of reprint collections such as the DC Archive Editions or the Chronicles series, most have been given titles in those reprints, and this story has subsequently been titled Superman, Champion of the Oppressed. I believe the Superman and Action Comics Archive reprint from 1998 was the first place that title was used. Other sources will occasionally list other titles for the story. I have seen it called The Coming of Superman, or The Revolution in San Monte, or The Revolution in San Monte Part 1. But all of these titles are, including the uh, Ch Superman Champion of the Oppressed, all these are retroactive titles because, as I said, upon original publication, it didn't have a title at all. So the story opens with a one-page sequence explaining, to borrow a phrase from a later Batman story, who Superman is and how he came to be. The top two-thirds of the page, which is seven panels plus one box of narration, gives the origin of Superman in its most basic form. And I'm going to read this because it's just so perfectly done and so simple that I don't think I could summarize it and, and really do it justice. As a distant planet was destroyed by old age, a scientist placed his infant son within a hastily devised spaceship, launching it towards Earth. When the vehicle landed on Earth, a passing motorist, discovering the sleeping babe within, turned the child over to an orphanage. Attendants, unaware the child's physical structure was millions of years advanced of their own, were astounded at his feats of strength. When maturity was reached, he discovered he could easily leap an eighth of a mile, hurdle a twenty-story building, raise tremendous weights, run faster than an express train, and that nothing less than a bursting shell could penetrate his skin. Early, Clark decided he must turn his titanic strength into channels that would benefit mankind. And so was created Superman, Champion of the Oppressed, the physical marvel who had sworn his existence to helping those in need. And so that's it, the initial origin of Superman. It's less than a page, but it covers all the basic points. And I'm kind of, of, of an opinion that if you've got a character, you really should be able to distill his or her origin down to a page or less, or else the origin is just far too complex. Yeah, there's something to be said for the longer origin stories like Man of Steel or Birthright that would come later, much later, and I don't have a problem at all with later stories going back to fill in details 
or expand on things. But I really like how in the Golden Age and really even somewhat in the Silver Age, characters' origins were just done and over and they got right into the action of the stories. They weren't drug out over story over after story or issue after issue before they actually got into telling real stories about the characters' adventures. Another thing about this one-page origin that we got here in the Action Comics number one, you can see how it would influence the openings to the radio serial and the George Reeves' Adventures of Superman. Those are now very famous with the faster-than-a-speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive. But we've got that all here, too. You know, the strange visitor from another planet, powers and abilities far beyond mortal men. It may not be using those same words, but all those concepts are right here in this initial origin. And I just think that's amazing. So that's the majority of the first page of the issue. Uh, then in the lower right of the page, we get a two-panel sequence titled The Scientific Explanation of Clark Kent's Amazing Strength. Now, I find it interesting, or at least uh, amusing, that this segment refers to Clark Kent's amazing strength rather than Superman. But what this segment does is that it explains again that the planet's populace had advanced physical structures that gained fantastic abilities upon maturity. In other words, an entire race of Superman. It then compares Superman's abilities to the fact that on Earth, ants can lift hundreds of times their own weight and that grasshoppers can leap what would be several city blocks to a full-grown man. Now, as a comic book geek, I absolutely love this type of thing going beyond the stories and, and looking at the, the concept itself and how it works. And I think that the, the sequence owes a lot to the fact that Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster were both science fiction fans. They, they grew up reading uh, the sci-fi pulps and, and that type of thing. And they were just trying to, um, from a storytelling aspect, they were just trying to show that even though the concepts presented in the book were fantastic and outstanding, it may not actually be too far outside the realm of believability Wacky evolution aside, that is. But looking at this origin, it leaves quite a few questions. Uh, we're given no indication of what the planet was that Clark came from. We're not told where Clark was raised beyond the time at an orphanage. We're not told how he got the name Clark Kent. There's no mention of the Kents at all, in fact, beyond that he was found by an unnamed, quote-unquote, passing motorist. There's no mention of where the costume came from or where the bespectacled reporter identity came from, how Superman was first revealed, his first exploit, nothing. There's not even a mention of why Clark became Superman other than he decided that he needed to use his abilities to benefit mankind. Though that last bit isn't at all a detriment in my opinion because the idea that he uses his abilities to benefit mankind out of pure altruism is something that I love about the character. And in my opinion, it really sets him apart from many other characters that would come along whose origins left them motivated out of revenge or guilt or whatever else. And yet, even with all these things absent from the first origin, it works. Planet explodes, baby lands on Earth, and grows up, uses his abilities to help people. It's quick, it's dirty, but it's simple, and it works. Now, we'll get an expanded version of this origin in about a year, and we'll talk about it more when we get there, but for right now, this is the only origin that the readers had, or that we, as the reader, have. Turning the page, we jump immediately into the thick of the action as we find Superman racing through the night with a woman bound and gagged under his arm. Superman sits the woman by a tree and tells her to make herself comfortable because he doesn't have time to attend to it. Now, already I'm amused because, that's right criminals, beware, Superman has no time for your comfort. So, Superman races off to a nearby mansion and demands to see the governor over a matter of life and death. The governor's butler refuses, so after crashing through the door and again being refused, Superman grabs the guy by his robe and carries him one-handed up the stairs. When they get to the governor's bedroom, they find that they are blocked by a steel door, which the butler sarcastically dares Superman to try and tear down. Normally, I might pause and question why a man, even a governor, has a giant steel door blocking access to his bedroom, but what happens next is so great that I'm going to go right on to it, because this is just a great series of panels. 
So the butler has dared Superman to try and bust through the door, and he's got this hilarious mocking sneer on his face. Superman simply walks up to the door, rips this giant steel door off its hinges, and then stands akimbo with a big grin and says, It was your idea, as the butler is absolutely stunned. It's just a hilarious sequence with great art by Schuster. Superman explains that the to the, he explains to the governor that Evelyn Curry is to be electrocuted in 15 minutes for murder and that he has a signed confession that she's innocent. Meanwhile, the butler, still thinking Superman's just some crazy guy off the street, apparently wearing tights and a cape, tries to shoot him with a gun, which makes him the first wise guy to try that stunt. 12 minutes to go. The bullets bounce off Superman's chest, and he grabs the gun from the butler and again confronts the governor. Nine minutes. The governor looks at the papers and makes a hurried call to the jail and is able to pardon Curry just as she, she is being led to the chair. The execution is halted, and back at the mansion, Superman disappears, but not before leaving a note about the whereabouts of the real murderer, who is the nameless woman he left by the tree at the beginning of the issue. The next day, Clark Kent checks out a copy of the Daily Star on his way to work and is relieved to find that Superman isn't mentioned in the story of Curry's reprieve. And this is the first look we get of Clark Kent, of actually Clark Kent with the, the suit and the fedora and the glasses and all that. And I would like to mention that it is a blue suit, which would become synonymous with Clark in the years ahead. Meanwhile, the governor gathers with his people in his private chamber and expresses his shock at the events from the night before, but also his thankfulness that Superman is apparently on the side of law and order. Arriving at work at the offices of the Daily Star, Clark is called into the office of the unnamed editor, who tells him that, that reports of this Superman character have been coming in, and that he is assigning Clark to cover them. Clark replies confidently that if he can't find out anything about Superman, no one can. And I love this panel because it's it's sort of an early version of uh, George Reeves's wink to the camera that became so famous with the 50s television show. It's not exactly breaking the fourth wall, but it's kind of nice. On his way out of the office, Clark is alerted to a wife beating and heads out to cover the story. Superman arrives at the scene where he finds a large man holding a belt and looming over a woman who's cowering on the ground. Superman picks the husband up and in another great panel throws him into the wall with the classic line, you're not fighting a woman now. The husband then lunges at Superman with a knife only to faint in shock as the blade shatters against Superman's skin. Hearing police sirens approaching, Clark puts on street clothes. It doesn't say where he got the clothes, but in the next panel we see, a, we see he's fully dressed in a suit, glasses included. The police arrive at the apartment and Clark tells them that he just dropped by for a visit and found the place as it is, but that it looked like our friend Superman had paid a visit. Clark seems to not mind making his presence as Superman known to people, but it seems he's still trying to keep it shrouded in mystery. And I don't know if this was a, uh, a concentrated effort on the part of Siegel, or if it was just something more in keeping with the stories of the time, but I kind of like that in these early stories. Uh, Superman making a big splashy debut by saving a space plane or catching a helicopter from falling off the roof of the Daily Planet is great, but I also like this, which is a, a quieter debut and making him more of a, a mystery man than a superhero. We'll see this taken to even more of an extreme when we get to the radio show. And what the radio show does, while I wouldn't want to see it carried over to, say, a movie or or the comics, I really like what they did, and I'm excited to get there because I think you guys will like it as well. On a related note, these don't seem to be Clark's first adventures in his career as Superman, but he's still clearly an unknown to the majority of the populace. Uh, nor, does his, nor is it his debut as a reporter. This may be the reader's first exposure to the character, but it's clear from the narration and the dialogue that we're joining the story in progress, so to speak, and that this isn't the first page aside an origin story. Now that said, we're going to revisit this issue in a few episodes, so keep that in mind when we get to Superman number one.
Getting back to the story, later at the office, Clark approaches Lois, who's only known as Lois here, no last name in this issue, for a date. She agrees and says she'll give him a break this time. Later that night, while Clark and Lois dance, Clark asks her why she always avoids him at the office. An extremely disinterested Lois, who in this panel looks like she would rather be absolutely anywhere else in the world but dancing with Clark, tells him that she's been dishing out sob stories all day and is in no mood to dish out another. Meanwhile, tough guy Butch Mason tries to muscle in on their dance. Clark refuses, but eventually gives in, playing the role of the pushover. Lois is having none of it, slaps Butch in the face, and promptly storms out. After a shove to the face from Butch, Clark goes after her, but Lois calls him a spineless coward before riding off in a cab. Butch, swearing, No scut's gonna make a fool of me, charges out of the restaurant and follows after the taxi, quietly observed by none other than Superman. Butch's car forces the taxi off the road, and Butch and his two cronies nab Lois. As the thugs drive off, Butch fumes that he shouldn't have let her yellow boyfriend off so easy. One of his cronies jeers that maybe they'll meet up again sometime, when who should appear in the road directly in front of them? Of course, Superman! Butch lays on the gas, and Superman leaps over the car. At this point, Butch and his thugs freak out. <laughs> And this is another great panel by Schuster with some great exaggerated expressions. Believing it may be the devil himself after them, Butch lays even heavier on the gas and speeds off, but the car is easily overtaken by Superman, who picks up the car, shakes out its occupants, Lois included, before, in a money shot panel just like the cover, smashing the car into a nearby rock while Butch and his thugs flee terrified in different directions. The unfortunate thing about this panel is that the symbol on Superman's chest is missing entirely. In several reprints, it's been recolored, and the colorists have went and put a little yellow smudge right where the symbol should be, but if you look at an original, there's no symbol on Superman's chest. So Superman grabs Butch, leaps up, and hangs him by his belt from a telephone pole. Superman then confronts Lois and tells her, you needn't be afraid of me. I won't harm you. And I absolutely love this panel. Not only is it, the artwork is just amazing, and I know it's just one panel, but this panel is absolutely gorgeous. We've got Superman sort of looming over Lois a little bit without the dialogue and with a slight change of expression on Superman's face. It might almost look threatening, but... Superman's got this comforting smile on his face. Lois is leaning back. She she looks she looks taken aback and surprised, but not maybe a little bit frightened, but not freaked out like you would normally think a person would be who just saw a guy grab a car, turn it upside down, throw it into a rock, smashing it to bits, and then hanging a guy from a telephone pole. And and I realized that they probably didn't have a lot of time in 13 pages to go into Lois's reaction. But I think it also speaks a lot to the character of Lois Lane. Even in these earliest issues, she was very much confident, competent, and, and I hate to use this word because it, it, um, it has other implications, but she was very much the modern-day feminist in these, in these issues. And I absolutely love that about her character. And yes, we'll see her... Yes, we'll see her played as the damsel in distress and getting kidnapped by the thug of the issue and, and whatnot. But right here in this panel, it speaks so much about her character and about the character of Superman... And just the way they re relate to each other, you know, because Superman is this big, muscular character, large-framed, and, and Lois is a smaller-framed, wispy character. And just the body language that Schuster put into this panel is is absolutely wonderful. And the lighting effects, it, we've got this splash of yellow that comes back behind the characters, 
and the the rest of the background is just black it's just a a wonderfully lit panel i'm going on here but it's just a beautiful panel and i'm going to scan this and put it in the show notes i'm sure a lot of you have seen this issue but if you haven't this you've got to see this panel alex ross did a version of this panel that i believe was sold as a lithograph when the uh, when the Warner Brothers had their stores. And I never was able to get a copy of it, but I would love to get my hands on one at some point. I've tried to find a scan of it online and as, as yet haven't had any luck, but I will keep looking and if I can find that, I will put it in the show notes. It really is a nice take on it. Um, if you're, if you are familiar with Alex Ross's work, it's not quite his normal style. It's got more of a, uh, possibly like a pulp, pulp magazine cover feel to it. Uh, there's kind of an ethereal haze over it and the, the background, um, it's, it's kind of textured in the background. It's, it's just a really nice take. And like I said, I'm, I'm going to try and find it and put it in the show notes. But regardless, this is a show about the golden age and I'm going to at least scan this panel and put that in the show notes. Some people will speak um, poorly of, of Joe Schuster's artwork uh, because it is a bit crude. Um, really, uh, really no more so than other artists of the of the same time period. But compared to compared to modern day artists, yes, I will admit it is a bit crude. But Schuster had a a fantastic. Uh, a fantastic control over body language and over expressions and this panel just really shows all that off and that's just the artwork of this this amazing panel that line of dialogue that Siegel wrote you needn't be afraid of me I won't harm you that's just a great line I mean I can hear Superman saying that I can hear Christopher Reeve as Superman saying that as easily as I can hear him saying, Easy, miss. I've got you. When he catches Lois from falling off the roof of the Daily Planet. It's just a great, and it's just two sentences. It's a great line that totally captures my view of Superman. A while back, uh, my buddy Ryan that I mentioned at the beginning of the show, he asked what Superman moment defined the character. And I told him the helicopter scene from Superman the movie is what did it for me. Lois falls off the roof of the Daily Planet. He catches her. She's freaking out from falling several stories. He catches her and just simply says, Easy, miss. I've got you. Very calm. Very nonchalant. Very simply as if he just steadied her from falling off the curb. After the save... He sets the helicopter back on the roof, and with a simple, gentlemen, this man needs help. And those guys that rush into action, no question. His, his mere presence lets people know that he's in full control, not by being domineering, not by being threatening, but by simply being calm and assertive, and his presence leads the situation and takes command of the situation and it's just I, I love that scene in the movie and if i were to take that scene and condense it down to one panel this would be that panel because everything that they did in that in that scene siegel and schuster did in this panel people feel more comfortable just by superman being there and you know, like I said earlier, you can tell in Lois's body language, she's surprised, taken aback, but she's not freaking out. And that speaks as much to Lois's character as it does to Superman's character. It's just masterful. And I know I'm going on here, and we'll go on in a minute, but gosh, I just love this panel. People will say that Golden Age comics are crude or poorly written and, and you know all this all this uh derogatory type talk but once in a while you get this panel or or a sequence that are just so so perfect and you're going to be hard pressed to find very many modern comics that will match this sort of 
perfection in so little of a space. So getting back to the story, Superman sweeps Lois into his arms and runs or leaps back towards town. He drops her off at the city limits, advises her not to print anything about what just happened, and apparently just leaves her there to find her own way home. It doesn't really say, but in the next panel, we cut to the next morning with Lois telling the, the Daily Star's editor about her Superman sighting, and the editor simply questioning if what she saw wasn't actually pink elephants. And really, that's kind of bizarre because four pages earlier, he was just telling Clark to start covering the sightings of this so-called Superman character. Uh, but uh, there you go. So, back out in the newsroom, Clark approaches Lois and tries to apologize for what happened on their date, but Lois just ignores him and continues to give him the cold shoulder. Later, Clark receives an assignment from the editor. He's being sent as a correspondent to cover a war going on in the South American Republic of San Monte. In the next panel, we find Superman trap excuse me, we find Clark Kent traveling aboard a train en route to San not San Monte, but Washington, DC. It isn't really explained why he goes to DC, but he does end up dealing with the San Monte assignment in a bit, so just hang tight. Upon arrival in DC, Clark attends a session of Congress and later snaps a photo of a Senator Barrows speaking with a rather shifty-looking character. Barrows tells the character he was to never speak with him in public and then they should meet at his home later that evening. And it's kind of interesting, they don't make a deal here that Clark is using his super hearing, but I think it could be comfortably said that this is the first place that he does so because from the art, Clark is standing quite a ways away from Barrows and the, the other character. And the conversation they're having isn't one that they would be speaking very loudly, obviously. So while it's not, while it's not said in the narration, it could be assumed that Clark is using his super hearing, even if that's a, an ability he won't specifically be said to have for a while yet. So later, Clark pays a visit to a local DC newspaper and learns that the character was Alex Greer, the slickest lobbyist in Washington. That evening, Clark, in his guise as Superman, eavesdrops on the meeting outside of Barrows' apartment. The senator, at the behest of the lobbyist Greer, is pushing a bill through that will embroil the United States with Europe. Greer assures Barrows that he will be well taken care of financially for his part. As Greer leaves the apartment, he is confronted by Superman, who demands to know who Greer is lobbying, lobbying for in corrupting the senator. Greer refuses to talk, so Superman grabs him by the ankle and leaps out the window. Carrying Greer under one arm, Superman runs across a set of telephone wires. This scares Greer out of his wits as he yells for Superman to stop before they're both electrocuted. Superman reminds him that birds sit on the wires and aren't hurt, unless they touch one of the poles and are grounded, as Superman leaps over a pole, narrowly missing it. The pair finally lands on the dome of the U.S. Capitol building. Superman muses at the view before wondering out loud if he could jump all the way to the nearby building. Greer continues to freak out as Superman makes a mighty leap towards the building, only to narrowly miss it and send the pair plummeting towards the ground. To be continued. That's right, folks. Unfortunately, this particular story carries over until the next issue. It was very rare for stories in the Golden Age to continue from one issue to the next like this, and I would guess that the only reason this one does owes to the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, these stories were originally done in the format of newspaper strips and then reconfigured. Just off the top of my head, I can't think of um, any other stories uh, from Superman and the Golden Age that do continue to the next issue, and I could be wrong, so we might encounter a few, but there, there's not many because it just wasn't done back then. On the final page, the story ends about two-thirds of the way down the page, and the bottom third is an ad alerting readers to Superman's appearances in future issues of Action Comics. Part of the copy in the ad reads, A Physical Marvel, 
A mental wonder. Superman is destined to reshape the destiny of the world. As I was preparing this issue and, and I reread that ad, I think it can be honestly said that while he may not have reshaped the destiny of the world, he definitely did reshape the destiny of the comic book industry. The ad also features the first appearance of the iconic Superman breaking chains with his chest pose. And the piece of art in this ad will be reused uh, several times. It's a pretty well-known image. It was used on the back cover to Superman number one and in several several advertisements uh, that will come up in the next years of issues. It's, a, it's just a classic piece of Joe Schuster artwork. And what's interesting about it is it's also the first place we see the red coloring in the inverted triangle version of the shield. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the issue, or uh, excuse me, in the episode, in the uh, interior artwork, the shield he sports on his chest is all yellow. But here, the shield is identical to that, but the, the S on it is red, while the background and border remain yellow. And so that's it. A really, really great beginning in my opinion. It's pretty easy for me to see why the character took off like he did because this is just so much different than anything else that was in comic books or really even newspaper strips or pulps at the time. In this first issue, we've got Superman leaping from adventure to adventure, saving lives, stopping abusive husbands, rescuing Lois in their historic first meeting, going after crooked politicians, very much the epitome of the social crusader. Uh, but even more than that, we've got a guy that's throwing cars around. He's shrugging off bullets and knives. It's, it's just vastly different than almost anything else that was published at the time. This story has been reprinted numerous times. It's obviously a vast, a vast historical significance. And it may be the most reprinted Superman story of all time. And if it's not, I would be very surprised to not see it at least at number two. Because of the sheer number of reprints, I'm not going to list them all in this podcast. But some notable reprints of the story include the first volumes of the Superman, the Action Comics Archives, and Superman Chronicles, as well as the Superman in the 40s trade paperback. Uh, despite the name on that last trade paperback, it does contain a few stories from the 30s as well. But because Superman was only being published for about a year and a half of the 30s, I imagine DC didn't, you know, see many, see any point to doing a Superman in the 30s trade, so they just included those stories in the Superman in the 40s. Two other notable reprints are the Action Comics number no. one Millennium Edition from 2000 and famous first edition C-26 from 1974. Both of those reprinted the entire contents of Action Comics number no. 1, not just the Superman story. The famous first reprint was also tabloid-sized for those who want a larger version of the artwork. The BIP Comics website has a page that compares some of the many reprints of Action Comics number no. 1 from throughout the years and notes the differences between them. They put this uh, page up, I think, mainly to try and stymie people who would try and take a reprint of Action Comics number one and sell it as an original version. Uh, I will put a link to that in the show notes if you're interested, even if you're not looking to buy a, an original copy or are smart enough to tell the difference. It's kind of an interesting site to look at. As with all comics of the day, Action Comics was an anthology series that contained many different features in each issue. Other features in this first issue included Chuck Dawson, Zaytara, The Adventures of Marco Polo, Pet Morgan, and Tex Thompson. For a more in-depth look at each of these features, if you're interested, I would recommend listening to episode number 111 of Billy Hogan's Superman Fan Podcast. In that episode, he talks a bit more about each story and, and gives some information about each feature, and I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. As I mentioned earlier in the show, Action Comics was the fourth ongoing title published by Detective Comics, Inc., the other three being New Adventure Comics, 
more fun comics, and detective comics. I thought I would take just a minute to look at the other titles that came out the same month as Action Comics number one, just for a bit of a uh, historical note and, and to kind of get a perspective on what else was going on at the time. More Fun Comics was, at the time, the, com the company's longest running title. It began publication in 1935 with the title New Fun. Not only was it the first publication of the company that would become DC Comics, it was also the first comic book series to feature all original material rather than reprints of newspaper comic strips. And this made it a very historic title. The book's name was changed from New Fun to More Fun, beginning with issue number 7, and then to More Fun Comics with number 10. Issue number 32 was released with the June 1938 cover date, the same as Action Comics number 1. The issue contained several features, two of which were Dr. Occult and The Radio Squad. Both features were created and done in this issue by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Dr. Occult had debuted in issue number 6 of the magazine, and was one of the first Siegel-Schuster collaborations to see print years before Superman. Radio Squad first appeared in issue number 11 of the title, and was originally called Calling All Cars, and it would bear that title until issue number 19. Two other notable features in this issue are the second appearance of Ginger Snap and the first appearance of Marjorie Daw. Both of these characters were created by Bob Kane, who would go on to co-create, along with Bill Finger, a little heard of character called Batman. And speaking of Batman, Detective Comics number 16 was likewise published with the June 1938 cover date. The magazine, as the title might suggest, contained detective, crime, and other hard-boiled features, and it began publication in early 1937. Along with Action Comics, it is the only other comic from this time period still published today. And if you are uh, a follower of, of modern comics, I know what you might be thinking. Why, if Detective Comics was already at issue number 16 when Action Comics published its first issue, then why today is Action Comics more than 20 issues ahead in numbering? Well, in mid-1988, Action Comics became a weekly title. This new publication frequency uh, lasted for just shy of 10 months and encompassed 42 issues in all, which allowed Action Comics to surpass Detective in number even though the latter was older. So like I said, the 16th issue of Detective Comics was released with a June 1938 cover date. Like the other titles from the company, it contained several features, among which were Bart Reagan Spy, and Slam Bradley, two more Siegel and Schuster efforts. Both features debuted in the first issue of Detective Comics, and Slam Bradley, who, um, by the way, is no relation, was the longest-running feature in the title before Batman. The final title was New Adventure Comics, which began publication in late 1935, not quite a year after New Fun. The title actually began with the name New Comics, which explains why New Fun was changed to More Fun, so there wouldn't be any confusion between the two titles. It adopted the New Adventure Comics title with number 12. The June 1938 cover dated issue was issue number 27, and it contained 18 features, the most of any of the four comics. Most are shorter strips, which is why they were able to get so many into one issue, and one feature that is of definite note is the four-page Federal Man, which was done by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. So in one month, out of four titles, six different Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster collaborations appeared. And while we'll slowly see these features ended or handed off to other creators as Superman's popularity rises, Siegel and Schuster do actually stick with them for quite a while. Siegel and Schuster... and obviously rightly so, are usually only billed as the creators of Superman. But it's amazing to me how prolific they were in creating features and stories long before Superman saw publication. Some of them were very popular in their day, and some, such as Dr. Occult, 
Slam Bradley and a couple later Jerry Siegel creations with other artists still make occasional or even regular appearances today. None of them ever reached the level of popularity of Superman, but then how many characters did? So that's about it for this episode. Before I close out the show, I want to give a huge, huge thank you to Billy Hogan and Charlie Niemeyer for promoting the show. Billy Hogan's Superman Fan Podcast and Charlie Niemeyer's Superman in the Bronze Age Podcast are both excellent shows that come with very high recommendations from me. Both guys played the show promo in episodes of their show before they were even able to hear the first episode of this, and I really can't thank them enough for the plug. Hi, my name is Billy Hogan, host of the Superman Fan Podcast, which explores the world of Superman and the many creators who have added to his legacy over the decades. Episodes will feature creator biographies or highlight some of their top stories they have created as well as their top characters. Other episodes will feature topics appropriate to the holiday or the time of the year. For instance, Valentine's Day will feature stories about the women in Superman's life, April Fool's Day will feature some of the bizarre Superman Silver Age stories or some of the imaginary stories that have been published. Halloween will feature some of the scary Superman stories or some of his strange transformations and, of course, some of the Christmas Superman stories. The website can be found at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com the blog is supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com and you can send email to supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. I also have a spoiler-free comic book review blog of the titles I read every week, which can be found at mypolllist.blogspot.com and you can send email about this blog to mypolllist at gmail.com. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Burn reboot in 1986. Follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. Please be sure to check out both shows. They really are good shows worth listening to. They both gave their URLs in the promos, but you can also find links to both shows in the sidebar of greatcrypton.com. And again, I want to thank you for joining me. This episode was a bit longer as I had a lot of history and background and information to cover. Future episodes should be a little shorter because I'll just be covering one issue or, or storyline at a time as we work our way through the Golden Age. But I do thank you very sincerely for sticking with me through this slightly longer episode. And I also want to apologize in advance for any audio issues that might pop up uh, as I get to the editing phase. I am... Uh, Fairly new at creating podcasts, so I'm kind of learning the ropes as I go, but I do thank you for sticking with me and and putting up with my learning curve. Next issue, we will be taking a look at the Superman story from Action Comics number two, so I sure hope you'll come back for that. In the meantime, there are several ways to get in touch with the show. You can send me an email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. Let me know what you like, what you didn't like. Give me some feedback. Like I said earlier in the show, I'm really hoping to make this a dialogue between fans as we, we learn more about the Golden Age. So be sure to send me an email with uh, your thoughts and feedback or any additions or corrections to what I've had to say. Be sure to head on over to greatcrypton.com where you can leave comments and see show notes, including links, images, and commentary relating to the issue, and you can also post comments there at the site. Also at the site, you can subscribe via the RSS feed, and the show is available on iTunes. If you subscribe via iTunes and are so inclined, be sure to leave me an iTunes review. 
It, it helps people find the show and know it's wor worth listening to. The Thrilling Adventures of Superman is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, which is available at fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork. The network serves as a hub for many great Superman-related podcasts and vidcasts. I believe the network is nearing about a dozen members at this point, so if you are interested in hearing other Superman-related podcasts, be sure to check that out. Uh, once again, the address is www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork. Superman and all related characters are copyright DC Comics. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Once more, I want to thank you for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later.